The reading for today's sermon comes from Joshua chapter 15, beginning at verse 20. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Judah according to their clans. The cities belonging to the tribe of the people of Judah in the extreme south toward the boundary of Edom were Kabzeel, Edda, Jagger, Kinna, Dimona, Adada, Kedesh, Hazor, Ifnan, Ziph, Telem, Bealoth, Hazor, Hadata, Kiriath, Hezron, that is Hazor, Amam, Sheba, Molada, Hazagada, Heshmon, Beth Pellet, Hazashual, Beersheba, Bizeothia, Bala, Eim, Ezem, Eltadad, Chesil, Horma, Ziklad, Madmana, Susansana, Lebaioth, Shilhim, Ayin, and Rimmon. In all, 29 cities with their villages. And in the lowland, Eshtaol, Zora, Ashna, Zanoa, Enganim, Tapua, Enam, Jarmuth, Adullam, Soko, Azekah, Sha'arim, Adithayim, Gedera, Gedarathayim, 14 cities with their villages. Zenan, Hadasha, Migdalgad, Dilian, Mezpeh, Jokthil, Lakish, Bozkath, Eglon, Kabon, Lachman, Chitlish, Gedaroth, Bethagon, Naamah, and Makeda, 16 cities with their villages. Libna, Ether, Ashan, Iftar, Ashna, Nezib, Kela, Achzib, and Meresha, nine cities with their villages. Ekron with its towns and its villages, from Ekron to the sea, all that were by the side of Ashdod with their villages, Ashdod, its towns and its villages, Gaza, its towns and its villages, to the brook of Egypt and the great sea with its coastline. And in the hill country, Shamir, Jatir, Soko, Dana, Kiriath, Sana, that is Debir, Anab, Eshtemo, Anib, Goshen, Holon, and Gilo, 11 cities with their villages. Arab, Duma, Eshtan, Janim, Beth Tapua, Afeka, Humtar, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, and Zior, nine cities with their villages. Ma'on, Carmel, Zif, Jutta, Jezreel, Jokdiam, Zanoa, Cain, Gibeah, and Timnah, ten cities with their villages. Halhul, Bethzur, Gedur, Ma'arath, Bethanoth, and Eltakon, six cities with their villages. Kiriath Baal, that is Kiriath Jerim, and Rabbah, two cities with their villages. In the wilderness, Beth Arabah, Midim, Sakika, Nibshan, the city of Salt, and then Gedi, six cities with their villages. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out, so the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Lord and gracious God, open your most sacred mouth, we pray, and speak such words that you would be pleased with what your Spirit creates in us this day. Recreate in us fresh life. Create in us fresh zeal and joy and a renewed assurance of all that your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, has done for us in his life and his death and his resurrection and his continuing rule over the whole world and over the church for our good and your glory. Work in us these miracles, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take a seat. And as you do so, let me welcome particularly those of you who are visiting 
today, although you might wonder after that reading what earth you've come to. Uh, it's a particular pleasure to see you. It's, um, it's a strange thing. You look out and you see unfamiliar faces and you say, praise God, glad you found us. So today, I'd like to talk about one of the most tricky issues that I've spoken about for quite a long time. It's not difficult exegetically, so to speak. It's not that the text is particularly complex. It's not really difficult theologically either. The concepts that I want to share with you are quite simple. This is a difficult topic because it requires tremendous wisdom to navigate it adequately. This is a topic concerning which we really need to understand ourselves. It's not where you can just kind of, okay, you grab a Bible verse and you sort of slap it on your life and then try and do it. You, we actually need to think really quite deeply about the world that we're in. We need to resist hasty conclusions and simplistic preferred conclusions and really slow down and prayerfully ask and perhaps talk to friends, those close to us, what is it that the Lord wants from me? Um, if we don't do that right, what's going to happen is you're going to run away with completely the, the wrong conclusion. You'll run away with the opposite conclusion to what you should have. So to introduce the theme that I want to discuss with you, I want to paint some scenarios which will help you to see what I have in mind. Consider, for example, perhaps you've just got a new job. I know one or two of you, that's true. You've just got a new job, and to be honest, you're finding it pretty hard work. It's unrelenting, non-stop. It's not that you can't do it, it's just that you didn't expect to find it so exhausting, and you come home Friday evening and you're like totally zombified. All you want to do is to sleep all day Saturday. And it's only 40 hours a week but still it seems to knock you out. Meanwhile, you look around at the other guys at church. One guy down here works 60 hours a week or 70 hours a week. He's a senior manager, he's CEO, and he seems to handle it fine. Like, what's wrong with me? He's at the men's discipleship breakfast an hour before everybody else, you know, frying bacon, and I could hardly drag myself out for the prayers at the end. You know, why can't I do what he can do? Yeah, and then he runs a Christian non-profit and he's got a family of children and he's building an extension to his house and he runs a little side hustle. It's like, how does he do it? Or, you just had your first child. Yikes. You used to be really competent at whatever it was you used to do, but now you suddenly find yourself overwhelmed. It's just non-stop. There's always something to do. You've got to feed. You've got to cook. You've got to change diapers. You've got to feed. You've got to cook some more. You've got to change diapers. So you've got to change diapers again and again and again. And you can't remember what it felt like to have had more than three hours sleep a night. <laughs> remember that? <laughs> when you used to wake up and think, ah, oh, morning. Not, oh, please, don't let it be morning. And then you get that sound. It's like, don't you know it's only 7 a.m.? Yeah, you need to feed me again. Meanwhile, you're supposed to keep the house nice and clean and not be depressed and be a happy, smiling wife because you've got this blessing of a child. And so you've got to come to church and pretend it's all wonderful. But to be honest, you're just finding it completely overwhelming. Meanwhile, you look around you and there's some other mum over there who's got three, six, nine children. You went around to their house the other week and it was like, you know, she was just glowing effortlessly coasting through it all. And all the kids were there in sort of height order. Beep, 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 beep. And then another one on the way. You know, it's just like... How does she do it? Or, 
Maybe you're past the um, newborn stage, you're into the homeschooling phase. Sounded like such a good idea at the beginning, because it's like, well, we're going to learn the colours. <laughs> and um, we've adopted a kind of go into the garden and count daisies model of home education. It's going to be fantastic. And that took about a week. And now you actually, you probably, you know, she's five, you probably want to teach her to read. And then one of the other mums came up to you at church the other week and she's like, so which Latin curriculum are you going to use? <laughs> you're like, oh... How does she do it? And why can't I? Or, you just started new year at school. Some of you started academic year at college or at school. To be honest, you're finding it slightly hard work. You've done all the previous year's stuff was okay. For the first time, you're actually, you've had that experience. I remember that this happening to me. You sit down at your desk and you look at the, and you simply don't know what the words on the page mean. Like, and it's like imposter syndrome in a big way, isn't it? Maybe I should go down a grade. What? Everyone else seems to be able to do it. Why can't I? And in all those situations, one way of thinking about the challenge that is before you is in the form of a question. It's the question which is the title to today's sermon. Should you raise your game? Or should you just thank God that you don't have to? Should you raise your game? Should you think, you know what? It's about time I pushed myself. Yeah, new academic year. I expected college to be difficult. New job. Expected it to be hard. Having a baby. Goodness sake, I know everyone pretends it's like it's wonderful. But, it's, but everyone's been through. And you just think, yes, I can do this. By God's grace, I'm going to push myself. I'm going to step up. By God's grace, I'm going to seek to raise my game. She can do it. He can do it. Same God. Same number of arms and legs. <laughs> maybe God's spirit could equip me to do that. Or maybe you just think, you know what? That's great. I don't have to be a super high achiever. I don't have to be. You know, one guy's going to Harvard Law, that's all right for him, and I don't have to. I'm not a failure if I can't do that. Can you see? In every single scenario that you find yourself in on that list, and countless more besides, should you raise your game, or should you thank God that you don't have to? What should you do? And this issue arises, actually, from Joshua chapter 15. Um, and at first glance, you might be thinking, as I was driving into church this morning, one of my children said, Dad, <laughs> what are you going to do with this, well, let's call it unpromising material? This is one of those texts that strains our doctrine of the usefulness of Scripture, doesn't it? All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. <clears throat> Thanks. Um, there's no land-grant narrative to rescue us from the tedium of just endless lists of places. Um, there's nothing much to see here, let's move on, unless you want to just practice pronouncing Hebrew names. And, but actually, in fact, this is very significant. Let me explain briefly why. What we see here is a really, really comprehensive list of the inheritance of cities that God gave to one of the tribes the tribe of Judah. And God gave to them, and they fought for, many, many more cities than any of the other tribes. So what we're seeing here, in the simplest way of thinking about it, you're seeing the outworking of God's promises. Think of Deuteronomy 6, the Lord your God will bring you into the land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and good cities that you didn't build. See the cities? Houses full of good things that you didn't fill. See the houses? 
cisterns that you didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant. What you're seeing here is a glorious picture of God's faithfulness to his people. And particularly to one of those tribes, Judah, the high achievers of Israel. And the key question that I want to start us off with is, okay, well, think, why is this here? Is it a kind of reassurance and encouragement to the other tribes? You know, look at Judah. Thank God for Judah. Isn't it just wonderful? The Lord has blessed me with a big brother who's fighting for us. Go for it, bro. I thank God that I don't have to do what you have to do. And you can tell, because if you think about the the dating of the book, uh, we know the book was written uh, in at least some form very early after the uh, conquest, because, for example, in chapter 6, it says Rahab is still living among the Israelites to this day. It's within a generation or so. And so as this book is compiled and it's presented before the people and they start to read it in their synagogues, what they start to hear are these lists of all this. Isn't it wonderful? At least there's one tribe among us who's got his act together. Judah, the great leader, if you had to guess where the Messiah is going to come from, right, that's where it would be. Or, is it a rebuke? As you're sitting there in the synagogue in the 13th and then the 12th and 11th centuries BC, do you hear the great accomplishments of Judah and you feel slightly ashamed? They've got the same number of arms and legs as I have, same God that I have. What? How come they managed to accomplish so much and I've accomplished so little? Maybe, I, maybe, actually, I'm not so old that I can't step up. Maybe I could take on more. Maybe I could raise my game. Can you see? And as this book makes its way into the Israelite consciousness, it's not, as some have suggested, just a legal document saying who owns which cities. It's in the wrong place if it's just a legal document. It belongs in a law book, if it's a legal document. This is in the scriptures of Israel. And therefore, it's there to teach and to encourage them, like all the scriptures, Romans 15, are there to teach and encourage. And so it would have pushed you in one of those two directions. And so the question is, which one is it? Is it the reassurance? Or is it the rebuke? Is it a reassurance or is it a rebuke? And the answer is what? Yes. It is both a reassurance and a rebuke. And the, the, the tremendously difficult thing is, I can't stand here and tell you which it is for you. And you start to see the difficulty. You have to listen to this. We all have to approach this part of the Word of God with that wisdom that not only sees what the Word says, but then looks at our own lives and our circumstances and our motives and our opportunities and, and thinks, now, what am I supposed to hear from this? Which way is this supposed to push me? Can you see the difficulty? The text is easy. The theology is not difficult. The real challenge is going to come once we've got through. I'll walk through the text with you. The challenge is going to come at the end where I'm going to leave you with complete confusion about what you're supposed to do and you have to go away and figure it out. I cannot do it for you. I pray that the Spirit of God would illuminate your minds and maybe set you in the right direction, but you have to figure this out. So we'll look through the text a little bit. I want to draw some theological connections out to other uh, doctrinal matters, and then we'll get to the practical things at the end. Okay, so first, let's just look at the text. Like I said, if you've got your Bibles, open them up again. It's just a list of cities, and the first thing you notice is it's very, very long. Now, you can see how long it is just by scrolling forward. Sorry, scrolling forward. Here's me talking as though you're looking at the Bible on an iPhone, which, of course, none of you are. 
better not be. That is a telephone, extremely good for making phone calls. This is a Bible. Scroll, flip forward, sorry, to chapter 19. Inheritance of Simeon is like this big. Zebulun's about the same size. Issachar's about the same size. Simeon gets 17 cities. Zebulun, 12. Issachar, 16. Asher, 22. You look at the initial count. You just count the cities in the list in chapter 15. 122 cities. All the other tribes on the west of the River Jordan, the Cisjordan tribes, as they're sometimes called, as opposed to the Transjordan tribes on the other side of the river, they had 128 between them. Like, so Judah, just at a superficial glance, does nearly 50% of the work. But actually, it's more extreme than that. Um, if you look um, at the actual cities that are named and you know a bit about the history, you know that Dan never conquered any of their cities at all. Uh, they were supposed to be in the south. They ended up right in the north because they didn't want to conquer, or didn't, or couldn't, or something. Their cities in the south. So take 17 off the list. Then you realize that Simeon, there's a bunch of duplication. Lots of Simeon cities are on Judah's list as well. And you have to knock them off Simeon because Simeon only got them because the Judahites fought for them. Judges 1, 4 to 7. And then you have to take out the cities of the Levites because there are a whole bunch of cities that the tribes didn't end up with. Three or four each they gave to the cities of to the Levites. So you do all the maths and you realize that well over half of the cities on one side of the Jordan is one tribe. One tribe doing well over half of the work. Um, anybody, anybody done any statistics? I'm going to hand up if you've done any sort of statistics. Some of you have done like mathsy stuff, right? Okay. Um, you heard of the 80-20 rule? You've all heard of the 80-20 rule. It's actually a statistical thing. It's called a Pareto distribution. Named after Vilfredo Pareto in the 18th, no, 19th, 20th century, he discovered that 80% of the cities in Italy were owned by 20% of the people. And then this has been generalized subsequently by economists and statisticians. 80% of charitable donations come from 20% of donors, and 80% of corporate sales are driven by 20% of customers, and 80% of the mass of everything in the universe comes from 20% of the stars. And you do the maths, and 80% of the cities, it's not quite 80%, and the rule is not like exactly 80 anyway. Approaching 80% of the cities on the west side of the River Jordan came from two of the tribes. Two out of ten, 20%, is Benjamin and Judah. Amazing, huh? So what's going on? What you've got is here the same kind of phenomenon that you observe elsewhere. Productivity and fruitfulness are not evenly distributed. Some people are just more productive than others. And that's the thing that would have gripped the Israelites as they're reading this. Now, part of the background to this if you think about what we talked about last time, we talked about um, Aksa and Othniel, and I mentioned um, in last week's sermon that Judah is presented as a kind of role model, what you're supposed to be. They come first in the long list of tribes on the west and so on. And so on one, uh, one hand, you're, you're expecting this to be uh, not the reassurance, don't worry, it's more the kick in the seat of the pants rebuke, because this is what you're supposed to be as the people of God. And indeed, when you look more closely, you find numerous features of the texts which suggest exactly that. Just look at the text if you've got it in front of you. Um, you notice, actually, it's not just a long list of names. If you look down, you see, for example, there are four broad geographical areas noted. First, uh, the south in verse 21 the Negev, it's the desert region down in the south. Then second, verse 33, 
the lowland, that's the low hills, it's the foothills of the hill country, which is the third place that's uh, named on, in verse 48, the hill country, and then in the wilderness. So there are four distinct geographical regions that are identified. And then when you look a bit more closely, you see that if, if you've got an English Standard Version of the Bible, this is really easy because it's broken up into paragraphs which indicate kind of breaks in the list in the Hebrew text. The text is written in Hebrew, obviously. And there are 12 separate subsections. So think, it's not just one long list. It's four big chunks. It's 12 smaller sections. Why four? Why 12? Well, that's easy. Well, the 12 is easy, right? Because 12, 12 tribes of Israel, Judah is here presented as a kind of paradigm for the whole of the people of God. It's like Israel in miniature here is the people of Judah. This is what you Israelites ought to be. And the four, well, you know the numerical significance of four pops up a bit less frequently, but it's certainly there in the scriptures. Ezekiel 7 verse 2 speaks of the four corners of the land, meaning the whole land. Revelation 7, verse 1, four angels standing at four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of earth. The four there indicates the totality of a place. Similar in Revelation 20, verse 8, the nations are at the four corners of the earth. So whereas 12 is a way of referring to the whole of the people of God, the four is a way of referring to the whole earth. So you put this together, it's a beautiful literary creation. This is not just some legal document to say which cities belong to which tribe. It's a, not poetic, more kind of literary way of saying this is what you 12 tribes should be. And this is how you should reach the whole four corners of the world. If you're all like Judah, if you could all just man up for five minutes, no, 2,000 years, and be like this, be like your big brother. Come on, can't you do it? That's one strand that you pick up. Then you see you'd be able to reach the four corners of the world. So you wanna be faithful, be like Judah. You wanna be productive, aspire, grow, raise your game. You wanna be an heir of the promises. You wanna participate in all the things that the Lord is doing. This is how to do it. But then, you see some features which raise to prominence the other strand of the implications that I suggested earlier flow from this text. First, you look closely, and this is the first, I was talking to my um, daughter on the way in, so the first thing you've really got to do, you've got a list of cities, and then it tells you how many cities are in each list. What are you going to do? Well, you've got to check, right? Make sure they've got the numbers right. Because if they haven't, something very strange going on. So how many, hands up if you were actually counting when I was doing the reading. Yeah, some of you were counting. Did you notice? And you thought, oh, maybe Pastor Jeffrey's missed a line out. I did not miss a line out, and I didn't put extra cities in. Look at the first mini list, verse 21 down to 32. How many cities are in the list? Well, it tells you in verse 32, 29 cities and their villages. And there are not 29 cities in that section, there are 36. So look, okay, what's going on here? Um, this is not an error in transmission. Right? This is a really easy thing to check. If you're a scribe, it's really easy just to do what half a dozen of you did during the reading and just make sure you've not missed any out or added any extra ones in. And in any case, this is the wrong way around. You could easily, 
initially miss out a couple of cities and then notice that the numerical total was higher than the actual number of names. And then you go back and scratch your head and think, which should I miss out? Oh, I missed these out, and you copy it, and it will be right. But this is the other way around. There are extra cities named that are not included in the numerical total at the end. So why? Well, the clue is that some of those names appear on another tribe's list. I mentioned it earlier, the tribe of Simeon. If you go to chapter 19, verses 1 to 7, this is the lot for Simeon. And we're going to actually look at this in a lot more detail in um, a few weeks' time. But it says in verse 1, their inheritance is in the midst of the inheritance of the people of Judah. So it's a, they're actually like an, you know, like a, the map of South Africa? There's an enclave called Lesotho, a city which is in, a country entirely surrounded by South Africa. Actually like Saginaw and um, Edgecliff Village in Fort Worth, they're enclaves. They're completely surrounded by Fort Worth. Fort Worth is like this giant sprawling megalopolis and it, you've got these little cities stuck within it well Simeon is like that within Judah and so it looks like what's happened is the inspired author has deliberately given you a lower total to call your attention to the fact that yeah some of those cities actually belong to Simeon and now the backstory to Simeon is a really really it's a beautiful story I'll, I'll save it but basically it's what it amounts to is they were really weak, they couldn't fight for themselves, so who fought for them? Judah. Judah actually takes the initiative in Judges chapter 1 and says, listen, you come with me and I'll fight for you. So you receive your inheritance. So Simeonites read this and what do they get? What do they, they get to verse 32 and they're all counting in their heads, they go 34, 35, 36, 29 cities. And you're like, and then they remember, yeah, because Judah fought for me. My big brother Actually, my little brother, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. My little brother went out to fight for me because I couldn't fight for myself. I don't actually have to raise my game because I've just been given this tremendous gift. It's a picture of grace shown by, well, guess which tribe is going to show grace to their brother. Not only the numbers don't add up, the geography actually doesn't work. I mentioned there are four areas, four geographical areas. Um, the Negev in verse 21, that's the extreme south, desert right down south of, well, it's really south of the Dead Sea, southeast of the Dead Sea. The lowland, the foothills, so basically the way that um, uh, Israel's geography works is from where you're sitting, sit sitting, you've got Jordan River Valley, hill country, lowland, it's sometimes called the Shafila, you heard that name? It's the, the foothills, and then the coastal plain, and they're kind of in four sort of parallel strips running north to south. And so you've got the lowland uh, in verse 33, then you've got the hill country, that's the hills, and then you've got the wilderness. Well, that's another region, it's a small region just to the west side of the, the Dead Sea. But then you've got a puzzle, right? Because look at verse 45. Ekron. Where's Ekron? with its towns and villages, from Ekron to the sea, and all that were by the side of Ashdod, with their villages. Then verse 47, Ashdod, with its towns and villages. Gaza, with its towns and villages. Hold on, Ekron, Ashdod, Gaza. Go and find a map. Some of you have got maps in your Bibles. Look at a map. Gaza and Ekron and Ashdod are not in the lowland. 
they're on the coast. It says they're on the coast in verse 45. Sorry, in verse 46 and uh, verse 47. So why? Why doesn't it say um, Negev, lowland, coastal plain, hill country, wilderness? Answer is, well, the clue is, you know where those cities are, right? Which nation lived in Gaza and Ashdod and Ashkelon? The great warlike nation that was never actually overcome in the days of Joshua. It was David who stamped out that nation. Who was it? The Philistines. Those are Philistine cities. The Philistines are called the Sea Peoples because they lived on the coast and they travelled across the sea. These are ports. Ashkelon and Gaza are port cities. They're not actually in a geographical region that Judah has got a hold of yet. So what's happening here is the text is drawing attention to the fact that Judah hadn't finished doing their job. They hadn't actually got their inheritance. Really, what they, they're a forward-looking tribe. They're waiting for the lion of the tribe of Judah. He'll be able to drive out the Philistines. And so then you're waiting for a great king, a great anointed Messiah, David, David and Goliath, and then great David's greater son, who will actually bring to fulfillment what Judah did. But the point about Judah here is they've not actually done the job yet. Which raises the question, like, who's going to? Now, obviously, we know who did in the end, but if you're sitting there, you're one of the other tribes, you might think, hmm, maybe I've stepped back a little bit too much and could afford to step up. And that's definitely confirmed by the very last detail, and you notice this in verse 63. There's another quirk here. Verse 63, I'll read it to you, because it looks like a failure. Notice, verse 63, the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Hmm. Failed conquest. Judah, you didn't do your job. No, 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 hold on a second. Whose tribal inheritance is Jerusalem in? Judah is right at the south end of the people of Israel. If you look at the map of where all the boundaries are, and you look at the boundary, it's described later on, uh, the, no, and, and earlier, actually. The boundary runs um, really close to Jerusalem, and it runs through the Valley of um, Hinnom, and then it goes off to the west. The Valley of Hinnom is to the south of Jerusalem, which means that Jerusalem is north of the border in Benjamin's tribal inheritance, which is why it's listed in Benjamin's tribal inheritance in chapter 18. So when it says... Uh, the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. You know what happens? All the Benjaminites go, yeah, I know. Yeah, because that was our job. We should have done that. We should have seen our big brother laying down his life for, well, Simeon, capturing a whole bunch of other cities which actually went to other tribes, like the tribe of Asher. And we should, there was like one city, like one really important city, and we didn't do it. And like, we can't, You can't rely on him to do everything. Can you see? That's how the Benjaminites would have felt when they... It's like, yeah, we missed that opportunity. It's a rebuke to us. We should have stepped up. And maybe we should step up now. So in summary, uh, there's this complex, double-edged message from this text. On the one hand, it's, thank the Lord. You don't have to do it all. You don't have to be super mum. 
You don't have to be super dad. Just because she's had 12 children, you don't have to have 13. Just because he's got three jobs, you don't have to do four. Just because he's an elder, doesn't mean you have to. Right? Just because he's going to Harvard Law, it's fine that you didn't get in. And, come on, son. Isn't there a danger you're just kind of sitting back and waiting for somebody else to do what really is your responsibility, Benjamin? Sorry, that wasn't directed at Benjamin. <laughs> Can you see? So it is a razor-sharp piece of rhetoric if you're, if you're thinking about it from the perspective of um, the early Israelites. So, let me just make some theological connections first, because th this will help us to put things in a broader perspective. First, notice there's a connection here between uh, this text and the eschatological perspective we've been thinking about recently, and also the doctrine of the church. Eschatology, I've been talking about a post-millennial eschatology, which is to say that Christ will return post, after this era of history in which we're now living, during which the kingdom of Christ will continue to grow uh, like a uh, seed that is sown and multiplies 30, 60, 100 times, like yeast going through the hole of a batch of dough, like a rock that becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth, and then one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord until the waters cover, cover the sea, and then the end will come. That's post-millennial eschatology. Amen. Hallelujah. That was... And the way that that program for kingdom advance is carried out is by Jesus working in and through his people. Somebody is going to have to build that Christian business. Somebody is going to have to start that Christian non-profit. Somebody is going to have to have some kids, and somebody is going to have to educate them. Somebody is going to have to step up, and we can't all kind of bail out of school just before calculus. In other words, all of the, all of the different aspects of human life that we want to see brought under the rule of Jesus Christ, he does that instrumentally by his Spirit in and through you and me. We want to see Christian government. We want to see Christian businesses. We want to see the S&P 500 not dominated by one massive investor who insists on wokeified everything. Well, go ahead and do it then. Somebody. Sometime. Somewhere. Stop blogging about it. Do it. That's how post-mill eschatology works out practically in, and then the, the other way it works out practically is, oh, thank you, Lord, because doctrine of the church, you've not got every gift, you've not got every opportunity, you don't have to be every man, Jesus is every man, Jesus will do it, it doesn't need your help or mine. And the text doesn't tell you which way to jump at that point, you have to work it out. Uh, there's another connection, of course, with the work of Christ and the life of Christ. You can ask the question in this way, how should you respond personally to the atoning work of Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, gave himself to suffer instead of us the curse due to us for the, as the punishment for sin. How should you respond to that? Well, obviously, thank God that I don't have to. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we're healed. We've all gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us also. He won't lay it upon you. Thank God for Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5. He died for us so that we might live with him. 
But you know, there's another way that we respond to the atoning work of Christ, isn't there? Which is equally biblical. Philippians 3.10. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 2 Corinthians 4. Paul speaks about himself and his companions. You remember this. Really, 2 Corinthians is one of the most emotionally involved, probably the most emotionally involved letter that Paul wrote. Always carrying in our body the death of Jesus. We're being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Colossians 1 is even more intense in a sense. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Can you see, there's this two-pronged response to what our great son of Judah has done. On the one hand, it's like, thank God, I don't have to go there. The other hand, it's like, let's go there. So then, we've got a few minutes left for some practical considerations. Let me make some obvious points. First, you can see the immense complexity of the issue. And you can see the grave danger that all of the people who should experience a kick in the seat of the pants go home reassured that they can just chill out. And all the people who already feel guilty for how little they feel they're achieving go home feeling even more guilty because I really ought to do more because pastor says so. Can you see, this is the great danger is that I discomfort the people who are already discomforted and comfort the people who jolly well ought to get out of bed earlier and do something. This is why it requires such wisdom. And the, the, the reading, just before our confession, the, the, the thought that sin deceives us. The devil would love to send the slightly guilty people home crushed and broken. And all the people who should be carrying their load just sort of chilled out because, you know, Judah did it. <laughs> Can you see how we can, if we're not careful, we need to be so alert to our own biases, as modern psychologists call it. Are, are you temperamentally inclined to take on yourself a load that's a bit too big and then to feel terrible? Or are you temperamentally inclined to make excuses for, well, my big brother isn't doing it, so why should I? And, and where actually, you know, you're young, fit, healthy, you've got plenty of time, you could throw the PlayStation in the trash and actually do something. Which, which direction do you tend to fall in? Then it gets more complex because some of you are making decisions for other people. Like parents, this is really difficult because if it's hard to know yourself, you know your own motives, how much harder is it to know other people's? You, it's really difficult. Well, you've got three or four children or whatever, two children, or just one child. And some kids find the things you give them really straightforward and need to be pushed a bit harder. And other, others find them really difficult and you kind of need to ease off or change direction. And, and you don't want to crush the life out of somebody who is, they're, they're just never going to, well, Harvard Law. Not, and if you're not careful, you can, I don't know, you, you know all the things, the bad things that can happen if you make a kid feel that he's a failure because he can't do the same thing that his big brother did. But on the other hand, maybe he could do some of the things that his big brother did. I'll tell you a story. A friend of mine, he arrived at theological seminary and he was really struggling to keep up. And he was really a great communicator and a lovely guy, really sharp in lots of ways, but he struggled to keep up. 
And so he went to a doctor, or uh, um, I maybe it wasn't a doctor, it was somebody, and they, and they did a bunch of tests. They said, Matt, you know you're dyslexic. He's like, oh, what's that mean? So, well, you have a, I don't know how you describe it, I guess a, you, you're neurologically less able to just recognize shapes of letters, and you get numbers and letters back to front and things. And he said, because everyone at school just thought I was stupid. So <laughs> he got this recorder, like an audio recorder, and then one of our mutual friends, Phil, spent hours and hours and hours with Matt making, just going over lecture notes with him, and he would just listen to the lectures again and get it in his head. You should hear him preach. Man, he's awesome. And, but if Matt had never gone to theological seminary, he'd go through his entire life thinking he's stupid because he couldn't do what his friends at school could have done, you see? Now, if you're Matt's mum, what are you going to do? when his big brother and his, li well, his little sister and his little sister's little brother are all ahead of him at school and you're like, come on, kick. Or do you, s I don't know, because you don't know when you're making decisions for other people. It's tremendously difficult. How do you figure it out? A um, bunch of things you might want to think about. You might want to talk to somebody. You might want to talk to each other, especially if you're married you can, and thinking about your children. You need to think about this. Um, there is a danger, let me warn you of this, there is a danger of comparing yourself to a kind of composite picture of everybody else's strengths. So, there's a, let's go with um, ladies again, there's a mother over here who seems effortlessly to glide through having half a dozen children and you're struggling with one, and then there's a, another lady over there and uh, she's uh, professionally just zooming ahead and manages to hold down another job in her part-time. Part and then there's another lady over here who works you know, two days a week at the Pregnancy Help Center. And you're like, oh, I don't do any of those things. And there's nobody in the universe who can do them all. And so we, we beat ourselves up because we're comparing ourselves to a composite of everybody else. And then let's just be frank about it, back to my friend from seminary and... and this will be relevant to different people here in different ways. There will be natural, behavioral, psychological, physical health things that just make it more difficult for some people in some circumstances to do what other people can do more easily. And then you know that all of those things could be an excuse. You know the guy who makes... If I'm going to go away from anything feeling guilty, it will be because of one man. It's not his fault. Um, Jonathan Edwards, in 19, 1751, he's my favorite theologian, America's greatest theologian. 1751, he got fired from his job at Northampton, uh, uh, Massachusetts, and he moved to Stockbridge. He had a bunch of offers. Virginia, he could have gone to Scotland. That would have been awesome if he'd come to Scotland. Anyway, but he, wanted, he turned down all those appealing posts because he wanted to go and be a missionary to Native Americans. Now, Stockbridge, frontier town, like five down, miles down the road, you've got people's houses being burned during the night by marauding bands of Native American Indians who don't like the fact that somebody's preaching the gospel to them. The climate, you get six feet of snow a year, seven months of the year, you've got temperatures where the low temperature at night is at or below freezing. They're so poor, he couldn't afford paper to write on. So, basically, he used to write on, I've told some of you this story before, he used to write on things that his wife had written on, like written shopping lists and, and um, patterns for making clothes and so on. And he would write like this. I'll show you my notes now, right? Okay. Write like this. And then he'd 
turn it through 90 degrees and write again, and then he'd turn it over and he'd write, and then he'd turn it over like this and write again. And it's still got the, the sewing pattern on it. So when, if you go do a PhD in Jonathan Edwards' studies at the Yale Center, the first thing you have to do is figure out how to read his handwriting when it's all like this. And he wrote, in the space of four years, he wrote, on the doctrine of original sin, the nature of true virtue, the end for which God created the world, and one book which, if it had been the only thing he ever produced, would alone have justified his reputation as the finest theologian America had ever produced, the freedom of the will, in four years. Freezing half to death, <laughs> writing in a pen that doesn't work on his wife's knitting patterns. And I want to complain about my backache? Give me a break. Can you see? All of the... Every single thing, even the natural disadvantages, the mental ill health, the physical illness, the poverty, everything that could be a mitigating factor could also be an excuse. And so I have left you with a complete tangled mess of pastoral chaos. And the only way you can find your way through it for you is to is to pray and think and seek the wisdom that only God can give as you work out what's the best thing for you to do. Let me leave you with one final reassurance. You look at this long list of cities in Judah. Do you notice what it's missing? <laughs> when you see a list, always ask yourself, what's not here? What's not here? Only the most famous and significant city in the entire history of this tribe is too small to be numbered among the clans of Judah, which Bethlehem. It's not even on the list. It's probably one of the villages. It, is not, it doesn't even get named. It is totally insignificant. It doesn't even make... There's a Bethlehem mentioned later on. I think it's in Issachar or Zebulun or something. That's a different Bethlehem. Bethlehem. It's in Zebulun's inheritance. That's not Bethlehem Ephrathah in the land of Judah, Micah 5.2. You who are too small, too insignificant, too much of a nobody to be even numbered among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, says the Lord, one who shall be ruler in Israel. In other words, I'm going to bring forth the most significant result of your tribal inheritance from something you didn't even know was there. Bethlehem. So meanwhile, we're all trying to optimize our output. And the Lord says, yeah, I love the day of small things. I have a way of bringing forth world-changing events from the most insignificant sources. You don't know how the Lord will change the world, but it probably won't be the obvious ways. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we leave this text as we frequently leave your word with more questions than answers. And yet we pray that those questions would lead us to greater wisdom. We pray that they would lead us to life-changing decisions undertaken with thoughtfulness and integrity and courage. And would you work in and through us, Father, to bring about the growth of the kingdom for which we long and hope and pray. In Jesus' name, amen.